Welcome to Brain in a Vat. We are delighted to have Stephen Kirshner join us to talk about a very milk toast topic, something that people have no strong views on at all, cultural appropriation. Steve, take it away with a thought experiment. So um, in 2018, two non-Hispanic white women wanted to open up a burrito cart. They went to Mexico to discover how to make authentic burritos. And then they opened up their food cart and started selling the burritos. Uh, they received a lot of criticism and shut down the cart. One criticism was that they stole the recipes. But the other criticism, the one I like to focus on, is that they were culturally appropriating the burrito design. And the question is, is that really, is it wrong or bad to appropriate a cultural idea or cultural design? One more example, in 2018, a Utah senior, a woman who was a senior, went to her prom and she dressed in a Chinese dress. I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think it's called a, a sipao. And it generated enormous controversy because it was thought that she was appropriating a dress style to which she had no right. So I want to claim that, in fact, it is that is permissible and good that we have cultural appropriation, that the objections fail and they fail miserably. So one of the arguments used by people who believe cultural appropriation is wrong is they say that when cultural appropriation occurs, it occurs by a group in power from it's a stealing of an icon or a practice from a group who is powerless or has less power and is traditionally oppressed and has fought very hard for their cultural norms. And so by stealing that, A, you're stealing and B, it's disrespectful of the journey that that powerless group had to traverse to get to that cultural icon. Excellent point. Let me separate the objections. One, that it's stealing, and second, that involves some sort of oppression or power differential. Let's take the stealing first. Cultural appropriation does not involve theft, and I think there's three main reasons why. The first reason is that a people cannot own an idea. An idea is an abstract universal, sort of a property that's capable of multiple instances. And it's not the sort of thing that anyone can own because it's not the sort of thing for which someone can acquire ownership. That is, have just an acquisition. A person can't mix their labor into an abstract universal. They can't incorporate into themselves. They can't add the value of the abstract universe to itself. And they can't first occupy it because it's not the sort of thing that can be occupied. Second, if someone could own an abstract universal, it would be an individual, not a people, because it's the people that acquire ownership in things. And third, if someone could own an idea, an abstract universal, then it would conflict with people's ownerships of particular things, that is concrete particulars. For example, if I own all this material, I own some flour and I own some beans and I own some rice, I can do with it what I want. And if I can do with it what I want, I can form a burrito. But if someone else owns the idea, there seems to be a conflict between my ownership of the particular objects, that is the concrete particulars, and someone else's object of the abstract universal. In addition, there's problems with what is the content of the right if there were such a right. The boundaries of these things are really unclear. So, for example, a bunch of Germans want to own a Czech shepherd. Now, is that a, their own shepherd or is that the Czech shepherd? A Czech shepherd is a derivative of the German shepherd. There's just no answer to this. Even the membership of the group seems to be really vague and vague in a way that's theoretically problematic, not just as a practical matter. For example, take the Chinese dress we mentioned before. Apparently it comes from the Manchu people, which is a subgroup of China. 
And you wonder, is the relevant owner of this idea, is it the Manchu people? All the Chinese, uh, do the Han Chinese, which are the majority get included? There does not seem to be a right answer to this. And the fact that there does not seem to be a right answer to this tells us that, that probably because there is no right answer. Even how the group owns it. Imagine that someone wanted to sell the right to this dress, right? They wanted to sell it to Walmart for a high enough price. What's the decision procedure? If there were such a right, there presumably would be a decision procedure, but there's not. It's not clear if we have to have the majority vote, unanimous consent, a supermajority, a majority weighted by the intensity of preference. So one, it's not clear that people can own an idea. Second, it's not clear that we have, that, that there's a right answer regarding how the right functions. But third, if there is such a right, then the right is independent of oppression. And this brings us to the second point. That is, stealing's wrong, period. It's wrong whether you steal from a person who's poor, disadvantaged, or oppressed, or from a rich person who's advantaged and not oppressed. But none of the people who seem to be opposed to cultural appropriation seem to have any problem with disadvantaged people using Western ideas. Consider things like check government with checks and balances, or calculus, or Western medicine, or Beethoven or reading John Locke. So the lack of symmetry is striking. It tells us two things. It tells us one, that a people do not own an idea. And two, it tells us that even if a people do own idea, it's not gonna work in the way in which a current people who are currently opposed to cultural appropriation think it will, because it will tell us that you really should not be playing Beethoven in Sudan, or you really should not be using Western medicine in among the indigenous people in Australia. And, and no one thinks that. And that's because the opponents of cultural appropriation do not have a consistent position. They cannot establish a right, which is necessary to show the cultural appropriation is wrong. And even if they could have show a right, they can't show that it's linked to oppression. So I want to try and come up with some counters. So First of all, if we think about the term appropriation, and often we think of it as a deprivation. So if I appropriate your car, I have the car that you once had and you no longer have a car. If I take your idea, it's not clear that you are deprived of the idea. You retain it. I've just made a copy. But let me give you a case. So let's say I decide I'm going to write a novel for sale and it's going to take me a fair amount of time to write this novel. And so I create a crowdfunder online and I get 10,000 people to contribute to it. And in exchange, I say, you all get a right in the novel, okay? You'll all get a percentage of the copyright and a percentage of the sales that are done. Now, I obviously can't copyright any particular word. Words are not copyrightable. Everyone can use those words. As you say, they're all freely available, like your flour and your wheat and your heat. But I can say that you cannot go, once I've made that novel and once it's out on shelves, you can't go and rearrange words so that they look identical to my novel. Once you do that, you've infringed on my copyright. So not just my copyright, but the copyright of the group. And it's actionable. So if you go and produce your version of my novel, which is identical, I can sue you and all the other copyright holders can sue you. So that implies that you can have an intellectual property over things that others hold individual parts to. That it's not only individuals who can exercise those rights, but also groups, provided that they are properly part of the group. With regards to the question about the asymmetry, it might very well be the case that every culture can claim an intellectual property right to 
the things that have come out of their traditions, but it might be unseemly to enforce the right. So in a circumstance where your culture has an enormous amount of power and has done very well, that you have a right to restrain others from using it, but that there's a countervailing reason not to exercise the right. And that might explain why there's an asymmetry. Good, superb point. So let's, so one objection, so I'm separate to that. One is that we have an analogy here to own intellectual property. And in the same way you can own intellectual property, you should be able to own an idea. So my basic claim we can't own ideas is mistaken as a metaphysical and a moral matter. And separately, that look, it just seems that it becomes that tradition of, of people do own something. Okay, you're absolutely right. Intellectual property in, uh, under law, there are things like copyright, patent, and trademark, and people do own these things. And we would get very upset if someone stole them. But it looks like these have consequential justifications. A couple of ways you can see that. One, it's just hard to see how, how people can own particular things and also people can own abstract ideas. Take Leonard Skinner's strong Freebird. If I own a sheet of paper and a pen and I write down the lyrics of Freebird, one of two things is true. Either I don't own the paper and it's some full-blooded ownership of the paper and pen, so I can't write down what I want on it, or I do it. If I can write down what I want on it, I can write down the lyrics of Freebird. If that's true, it's a little hard to see how you can have a conflicting right to the abstract universal that is the song Freebird. Second, it's, it looks like these sort of intellectual property rights are based on law, right? It's hard to believe in the state of nature that I couldn't copy someone's design for a particularly efficient form of wheel or some sort of leverage system, right? A block and tackle, for example. If it's not true in the state of nature, then it's probably not right-based. It's probably consequentialist-based. And also the boundaries of things are just really unclear. Imagine someone designs a brand new dance. Can they copyright patent or trademark the dance if not how is that different than the novel and, and again there are also the boundary issues so i guess i think that because we wouldn't think there's such a right in the state of nature and because it conflicts with rights to particular things concrete particulars that really consequentialism justifies this and in law you can see this in terms of how many years this right lasts it doesn't go on forever it has a limited time frame and this suggests that we're doing a cost benefit analysis we want enough incentive for people to develop it but also we want to favor the efficient dissemination of this as soon as possible right think about the design for penicillin we don't want people locking into the design for this in perpetuity because they might jack up the prices and no one would get access to it now in terms of the traditions the idea that you have a tradition if you a, a tradition owns something Again, it's a little hard to see how a people can own something. If Jason develops a brilliant idea, how do I gain ownership based on being a member of some group of which Jason is a member? How do I get membership, get ownership, simply in virtue of being a member of some group of which Jason's also a member? And in addition, we're back to the question of how can you own abstract universals? Um, one thing I should mention as, as well, there's an issue of whether you even have groups, right? So Jason has very strong views that there are no groups. And you might wonder, you know, is a group a sort of thing that can own something? Individuals can, and collections of individuals like a partnership can. But what is a group above and beyond just a collection of individuals? And you might think that a partnership's ownership is nothing more than the right of A's ownership and B's ownership and C's ownership and contracts between them as to how to make decision, decision how to make decisions. But there is no such thing as a group. And even if there were, it wouldn't be a moral entity. I'm so proud that my view is now shared by 
one other person, Stephen. <laughs> so let's put the group issue aside and let me try and give a consequentialist account for why cultural appropriation is wrong in at least some instances because it harms individuals. So the kind of cases I have in mind are not the typical cases where someone stands up in a shrill voice, screaming and shouting that it is wrong to culturally appropriate because they're offended on behalf of another group, of which they're perhaps not even a member. Those kind of cases I find very uninteresting and unconvincing. The cases which are more interesting to me are cases where you individually feel offended because the group to which you believe you belong has a culture and one of those symbols, which is very personally meaningful to you, has been appropriated. So I'm going to give you a case which is meant to, to illustrate this and preempt one of your responses. So the case was, I was about 20 years old. I grew up with younger brothers and my youngest brother had a bunch of friends. I think they were about 10 years old and they had a birthday party. And when you put a bunch of 10 year olds in a house, they run amok and they went through all my stuff and they did two things, right? So the one was, um, at the time, I was quite a religious Buddhist, and I used to meditate every day, and I had a meditation cushion, and I had a little sort of section quartered off in my room for my meditation mat and my meditation cushion, and they played catch with the meditation cushion, which, I mean, I think was quite suited to the task. It was like a nice size. It was quite light. It was perfect for the task of playing catch. And the second thing they did was they took my... I had a plate. When you're growing up in South Africa, I don't know if it's in the States, but a lot of children to correct their teeth wear a plate. It's an in, in, an inlay where you bite into it and it, they create a mold and it, it straightens your teeth. Anyway, so one of them was wearing my plate and one of them was throwing my, <laughs> I can see Mark bulking at wearing my plate and the other one was throwing my meditation cushion around. And I was upset at both, but I was upset for different reasons. So at the plate, I was upset because that's a personal hygiene issue, but I was, and I was upset that they had intruded on my possessions. But when it came to the meditation cushion, I was upset for those reasons and another one. And the other one was, but hold on, this is, this item has religious significance and it's being tossed around like it has no religious significance. And so I felt in some way personally offended. So it seems to me like on your account, they are both cases of the plate, the bite plate and the meditation cushion. The reason it's wrong for them to have used them the way they did is because they're using my property. It's some form of theft or some form of, of unconsented use of my property. But in the meditation cushion case, it seems like there was something wrong in addition. And that in addition was at least my feelings about it, which were consequences of their action which suggests that it was wrong for that reason. But my feelings were very much around it belonging to a certain tradition, a certain religion, and that their use of the meditation cushion as a toy was not an appropriate use of that symbol. So I worry that your account doesn't, it would conflate the wrongness of both cases as the same rather than explain the difference. Good. So a, a real point. And to tie it into cultural appropriation, you might think, look, what's, what makes cultural appropriation wrong in either all cases or most cases is that it involves an insult. And the insult really is the wrong maker here. And that's the problem. And that explains what's wrong to use the, the meditation cushion in a way different from the dental plate. Okay. A couple things here. 
Number one, insult is independent of cultural appropriation. You can insult someone without culturally appropriating things. You can culturally appropriate without insulting them. In fact, we often seem to culturally appropriate in a way which is not insulting, but complimentary, right? So if you have a if you have the football team in, in, in Washington, D.C., name themselves the Redskins, they didn't do it because they went to insult the Redskins. It's the opposite, because they appreciate the features of the Redskins. Or if you have the Notre Dame fighting Irish, this is not meant to insult the Irish. It's to celebrate the fighting spirit um, and the, the great attitudes and just overall greatness of the Irish people. Yeah, so they're just independent. But let's take the notion that insulting is itself wrongmaking. This is not in the least bit obvious to me. I know in, in ordinary life, we take this as wrong to insult someone, but it's a little hard to say why for a few reasons. Number one, it seems that it's not always wrong to insult someone. You can insult someone who's really done wrong or bad things. Insulting Hitler or Mao or Stalin or Pol Pot seems to be perfectly permissible. Also, it's not clear that you can't engage in harmless insulting. Imagine that the three of us make a bunch of jokes about Australopithecus. What a dumbass those Australopithecuses are. We haven't harmed the Australopithecus. It's not clear there's a wrong-making feature. What I think is going on here is I think that what happens in insult is that the person who's insulting is vicious. That is, we see a bad feature of the person, not that they do a wrongful act. Otherwise, it's a little hard to see why I don't have a right why I have a right against being insulted. I don't have a right with regard to what you think. I don't own your mind. I don't have a right with regard to what you say. I don't own your sort of mouth or what you put forth. If I don't own those things, why should I own the combination of that, what you express? In addition, there's lots of things that I might find insulting that you don't mean to say that are insulting. And there might be some things that you mean to say that are insulting that I find funny or enjoy. So it's a little hard to see, okay, what exactly is the wrong maker here? Is it what the person intends to, intends to insult the other interest? Is it what it in fact, that actually insults them? I don't see it being the latter. I might be too thin-skinned. I'm, I'm sensitive and a baby. It's hard to see everything that offends me is wrong making. It might be that I'm not thick-skinned enough. But again, it can't be what you intend because I don't own what you think. Now, maybe it's some combination. Perhaps I doubt a satisfactory combination can occur. As much as you were offended, I, I think you were offended by the viciousness of your younger brothers. And to be clear, younger brothers are indeed and often vicious, but that doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong by insulting you. Now, they did wrong you in terms of misusing your property, right? If they had burned your meditation pillow and your dental plate, right? And that'd be a clear case of a property rights infringement. But there, the wrong maker is understood in terms of property rights. So I want to see whether we can't use similar reasoning to create a reductio. So the reasoning would go something like, so what you're saying is you can have insult without cultural appropriation and cultural appropriation without insult. And so the cultural appropriation is not doing the wrong here. It's the insulting that's doing the wrong if there is any wrong at all. So I wonder if we can't use a similar methodology in a way that sounds absurd. So killing, right? It's not always the case that killing is wrong. And it's not always the case that, let's say, let's say it's not always the case that killing results in suffering that is unnecessary. And it's not always the case that unnecessary suffering involves killing. So it seems like they are distinct. And when you kill someone and it harms them, it's not the killing that's doing the harming, it's something else. 
It's the circumstances in which you do it, the way in which you do it, the something else, right? It's not the killing itself that's the problem. That obviously wouldn't, that wouldn't float, right? Here's another example, stealing. Stealing sometimes involves no harm. Sometimes it's not wrong. We can construct cases. Perhaps you're stealing to save a town. So you steal the nuclear bomb out from under the bomber or whatever it is. Sometimes stealing is not wrong. We can separate out the harm or the rights violations involved from the stealing itself. And so the stealing is not the issue. It's those other things. It's the rights violations or the harms that are the problem. And so when you steal something, you haven't necessarily done something wrong. But both of these cases seem misleading, right? So in certain cases, when you kill someone, we'd say it's the killing that was wrong. The killing was wrong. And when you steal something from me and I'm upset, we don't say it was the way in which you stole it. Or we'd say it's the stealing, it's the theft that's wrong. So I, I wonder whether you're separating out the description of the action in a way that isn't, that, that is unkosher. You're separating out the cultural appropriation from the insult when actually in that particular instance of cultural appropriation, it's built in. Yes. So I agree with what you're saying. In some cases, insulting occurs through cultural appropriation. There's only one action, right? There are not multiple actions. There's not just cultural appropriation and an insult. There's a cultural appropriation, which is also insulting. And if insulting is always wrong, then those instances of cultural appropriation will always be wrong as well. It's just one. It's not even clear to me that insulting isn't, in fact, wrongmaking. But you're absolutely right. In, in the same way that some killing is wrong when it's right infringing, yeah, those killings are wrong. So I agree with you. But I don't think most cultural appropriation is not insulting. The reason people want to wear Chinese dresses or eat burritos or look at indigenous art or look at Native American is because they really enjoy these things. They think they're excellent. The reason people want to dress up like Bob Marley or Bruce Lee is not because they mean to insult someone. It's because they admire these individuals, right? They admire their, their, their fighting or their music. So even if that were right, I don't think that covers much of cultural appropriation. Much of it is complimentary, not not insulting. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I do not think there are two acts. So some acts of cultural appropriation are wrong in virtue of being insulting, but it is the cultural appropriation itself that is wrong. I, I thought I'd just bri briefly mention why culture, it's not just cultural appropriation is not just permissible. It's good. We ought to encourage cultural appropriation rather than condemning it. The two reasons to see that it's good. One, it's efficient to have cultural appropriation, right? Number one, it makes the market more competitive. When you have a market, when you add more buyers and sellers to a market and there are less restrictions on the products they sell, it's going to be a more competitive market. More competitive markets are efficient and either in general or in each and every, other, each and every case, depending on how you view it. Efficiency makes the world a better place. Plus, as a matter of practice, cultural appropriation has improved our lives in an incredible number of ways. I use an example. Take the blues, right? The blues rock, which is derived from it. It's fantastic. We love this stuff. Why would we want to lose this? A lot of us love sushi. We love all sorts of cultural innovations, right? Spaghetti, gunpowder, all sorts of things come from other countries. Why? Just so in theory, it makes us better off because it leads to more competitive markets and more competitive markets are efficient. In practice, we can see how much better it's made our lives, right? Again, think about all the benefits we've gained from other cultures and that they've gained from our cultures. Why would we want to shut off things which lead to greater efficiency, both in theory and practice? But people think that 
cultural appropriation is bad, leaving aside whether it's wrong, are mistaken. And generally, the opposite is true. It's good and it's quite good. Just on a small scale thing, leaving aside debates as to whether or not to take Jamaican Chinese food. That's really good food. Why would we want to cut ourselves off from really good food? So yeah, I, I think cultural appropriation is both right and good. And but you're absolutely right. In cases where it's insulting, if insulting were itself wrong, then cultural appropriation would be wrong in those instances. So it seems to me that there's going to be a wide range of cases where we can say some kind of cultural appropriation has occurred, and you could mean that term neutrally and then work out whether those cases are good, neutral, or bad. And I think a bunch of the cases you give, it seems clearly a good thing to be able to borrow from the cultures of one tradition, to fuse them with your own culture, and to produce new objects. And that, that seems like how civilization has progressed in, in ways, and it's quite hard to disentangle who the original owner is. We might think that noodles, for example, or you said spaghetti, comes from Italy, and actually it has a sort of origin in China. Sushi, which is very popular, one of the most popular fish to use in sushi is salmon, but the Japanese only started using salmon once they could acquire it from the Norwegians. Before then, they thought it was revolting to use that kind of fish because they had worms in their belly. California rolls, which I think often was the iconic bit of sushi, is an American innovation. So there's all this cultural intermixing, and that seems like it's everyone's benefit. But let me see if I can come up with an example where we get more troubled by it. And it might be the case that it's not that a group can say we're the owners of it. That concept's a bit uh, heavy-handed, but maybe they can say we're the custodians, that there is a sacred tradition, sacred clothes, sacred rights that we have to protect, and that those things should only be done under certain circumstances, and that it's important that they retain their sacred quality. So, for example, Orthodox Jews wear tzitzit, that Mormons also wear undergarments and uh, which are used in, in church services. And the idea is that they're only used under certain circumstances and they remain hidden. And you can imagine that someone sees these undergarments and they think, oh, what a cool fashion statement. And they decide to wear them. And they intend to venerate. They say, I'm wearing it because I like the look of it. And Jews made this cool garment, so I'm going to wear my tassels out. And the Orthodox Jew can say, look, I understand that your intention really is to venerate this. But that has a certain religious, sacred nature to us. And by you wearing it outside of the, the right strictures of our faith, you are denigrating something that's important to us. You can imagine, for example, if someone says, I really like communion wafers. I just think they're really cool. And so I'm going to sell them en masse. And we're going to do chocolate ones and peanut butter flavored ones. And we'll have pictures of Jesus on them. And maybe we'll you'll get a lucky packet so you get a variety of saints. And then we'll do a bit of intermixing. So we'll stick in some Hindu gods in the box as well. And it's like a celebration of everyone's faith. And people might say, no, that stuff's really sacred. It's meant to be used only under certain circumstances. And we definitely don't like the idea of the Jesus cracker intermingling with the Shiva cracker. These things need to be kept apart. And those sorts of cases, the intent of the maker is not to denigrate, but it's the result. And you might think it's foreseeable that result would occur. And on that basis, the custodians have some kind of reason to complain or to ask the other side to desist. Great. So I, I think you make a really good point that there are certain things that seem like sacred symbols, and it seems to be either wrong or bad to use these things, even if you have proper intention, but particularly troubling if you don't have proper intention. Why, so this brings us to the more general point. Are people offended by cultural appropriation? I think there's three underlying objections where people find it objectionable, whereas objectionable is meant to be ambiguous between wrong and bad. One is they think it's insulting. Right? Second, they think it's just aesthetically 
problematic. And third, they think it's harmful. And I think the cases you mentioned fit into one or more of these categories. You might think, take a Native American war bonnet or the Mormon undergarments or the Orthodox Jews religious clothing. You might think it's just harmful. It offends them and that's a type of harm. Or you might think it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look right to have pasty white people wearing war bonnets. It just doesn't look right. Or to have a white woman, a white high school student wearing a Chinese dress, it looks wrong. Or you might think, look, what matters is whether someone sees something as an insult, rather it's interpreted as an insult. So those are the three explanations. So two general objections here, and then let me address foreseeable harm. Number one of each one of these things is independent of cultural appropriation, right? You can insult someone without culturally appropriating, you can culturally appropriate without insulting someone. Same thing with aesthetics. You can have aesthetic failures that are not cultural appropriation. You have cultural appropriation, which is not an aesthetic failure. But it's unclear why you get to reserve sacred symbols. Imagine that the Western people, let's say that the British, for example, wanted to make Western medicine sacred. Really, could they lock up Western medicine and no one else could use it because they find it deeply insulting if you use Western medicine? If they can't lock up Western medicine. Why do the Orthodox Jews or the Mormons get to lock up certain clothing types? In addition, with regard to foreseeable harm, if foreseeable harm is not right infringing, it's a little hard to see what's wrong making about it. For example, if Mark wins a legal case, a case that he ought to win, and his legal brilliance leads him to win it, and this causes the opposing attorney and an opposing client of that attorney to be really depressed and sad and, and go under a depressive, suffer for real depression, it's not clear what the complaint is. Sure, Mark might have known it's going to really harm these individuals if he wins this case, but the fact is he ought to win this case. He was right, and he has a right to do it. and his brilliance enabled it. It's hard to see why foreseeable harm is a wrongmaker. So I guess what I'm saying, I guess what I would say about sacred symbols is the following. One, if you think it's insulting to wear a sacred symbol and you think an insult is a wrongmaker, then that would explain the, these examples. But it's not obvious to me that insulting someone is a wrongmaker. And it's not in the least bit obvious to me that someone can lock up their sacred symbols. Imagine that the Japanese wanted to lock up sushi. They said, that's sacred to us. We do not want to see non-Japanese, even other Asians. We don't want them eating sushi. This is an insult to a culture and ancestry. You don't own sushi. You may have come up with a design. You may have made brilliant innovations with it, but you don't own it. And once you don't own it, that's it. That means it's not a wrongmaker for someone else to use it. Why would the sushi case and the Western medicine case, the case of Britain, be any different than the Orthodox, Jewish, or Mormon clothing? or for that matter, the Native American war bonnet. Yeah, I, I hear your cases. And I was saying to you and Mark before this discussion started that we both agree with you. So it's been very hard to find arguments against the position, but I'm going to keep trying. Okay. What about if you're just a consequentialist? And remember, we're not talking about legal wrongness here. So there's no legal wrong in using a group's idea or an, a culture's idea. But let's say when you, when, let's just say the first people from the West who came to Japan, who had a look at sushi, started eating it in front of Japanese people, perhaps started making their own sushi, the Japanese were quite upset, or some Japanese person was quite upset, let's just say. Haven't you caused distress in that person? If you're a consequentialist, doesn't that matter? 
Um, because the original claim was cultural appropriation is morally wrong, and you're arguing against that claim. A consequentialist says people's offense matters because that, that involves that involves harm. It involves suffering, and that's what matters to the utilitarian or the consequentialist, most consequentialists. That's not a reason. That, that doesn't mean a right has been violated necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that there should be some law against it, but it does count for the consequentialist. I think you're absolutely right. That's a superb point. And in fact, causing offense or causing harm in general is a negative on a consequential balance and absolutely should give it its full value. It's just that cultural appropriation has such net positive gains that they swamp these sorts of negative features. As mentioned, you just get a better market when you have more buyers and sellers and more people exchanging ideas, right? A sort of a greater exchange of ideas. To use the Portland case, why would you not want the better burritos, more authentic burritos? Do you benefit the members of Portland, even the Hispanic members of Portland, if you shut off access to the best burritos? I don't know if those women had the best burritos, but if they did, why would you ever want to shut off those best burritos? Or if you got this dress, which is especially pretty, or if you have other sorts of things which we take from cultures, why would we ever want to cut ourselves off to those things? One, it's a more efficient market and more efficient markets always or almost always make us better off. Second, there's just an enormous gain that we can see as not just a theoretical matter, but as a practical matter. For example, Brazilian jiu-jitsu seems to have seriously improved the fighting effectiveness of judo. Now, you might think, okay, is that a cultural appropriation? And perhaps, again, you have individuation problems. Is this a new sport or just the old sport? I'm not sure there's a right answer to that. But regardless, why would you not want these things improving? Why would you not take, the, take rock and roll, which developed the blues? I love rock and roll. So why, why would we want to shut off rock and roll or limited rock and roll to a much fewer number of people who could produce it? So the fact of the matter is I think you're absolutely right. I think it's really unfortunate that people take offense. I think that's a negative. We should take that seriously, but it's just swamped by the positive benefits. One other thing I should mention is we should not encourage people to be oversensitive babies. Not everything that your culture doesn't own things. Sometimes you have to say, all right, it's unfortunate. I'd prefer if we had our own distinguishing features, but that's not the way the world works. And I can't shut off the fun of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people because I take offense. Maybe I should just be less sensitive. Can I push this further, though? Yes, so remember, the traditional utilitarian view is that you should maximize utility, right? So there's not just two options here. So option one is you eat the sushi, offend the local Japanese people by making, fr making in front of them. That's option one. And you're saying ultimately that has very strong positive utility because that starts a movement which ultimately results in sushi coming to the West and everyone eats wonderful sushi and has a great time. But there's option two as well, which is you make the sushi in such a way that doesn't offend the locals, right? So you don't just make the sushi because in a way that you saw it, you maybe do the prayer first if prayers were involved, or you pay homage or you credit or whatever it would be to make it less offensive. Maybe you take a course in sushi making so that you don't make it poorly. Wouldn't that have higher utility because you have all the positive benefits of it coming to the West? as well as not offending the locals. So maybe the, the proponent of anti-cultural appropriation is saying something like that. They're saying, even if it has these positive consequences, we could be doing these things better and you have an obligation to have these sensitivities. 
So I think you're absolutely right. If having these sensitivities were to maximize the good, then on consequential grounds, we should do. I just find it to be highly implausible. This is not the case. Requiring people to do certain rituals, which are not theirs, they don't understand and don't feel right to them. They poorly understand or requiring them to take a five-hour class is a very large cost. Five hours is a lot of cost, let alone the cost of the class. So when you look how many people enjoy sushi, the sheer numbers and the sheer intensity of enjoyment, why slow it down or why keep potential cooks or potential sushi store owners out of the market because of these costs? So while I think you're absolutely right in theory, I think in practice, there's almost no chance that these sorts of culture respecting acts will increase rather than decrease utility. So I like your point. I just, and some of these things, by the way, so some of these things are very hard to calculate at the time, but later on become very clear. Take primitivism in art, which involves arguably the cultural appropriation of certain African symbols. There's brilliant art by people like Picasso and Matisse, Gauguin, Rousseau, Medigliani. It might not have been apparent at the time just how brilliant this was and how much this contributed, not only as art in itself, but leading to greater art down the road. But that was true, right? If you were to say, look, look, Picasso, or look, Rousseau, you can't use any primitive art until you take a 10-hour class learning how to appreciate and, and indicate your connection to these cultures. They might just say, screw it, I'll create other art. And then look what we would have lost. In general, I don't think you want to put up roadblocks unless... There's some reason to believe these roadblocks are efficient. I see no reason in either metaphysics or epistemology to believe that these roadblocks will increase efficiency. And if they don't increase efficiency, they make us worse off. So I think your point's an excellent one. I just disagree about what in practice we know about it. So it might be that we need to be fine-grained when we're looking at what the prohibition is. So if the question is allow cultural appropriation or disallow it, I think you're totally correct that you ought to allow it because you get all these wonderful treasures of the world coming in, proliferation of art, music, medicine, philosophy, all of that. It seems like an incredibly efficient, great, wonderful thing. But maybe that's the wrong way to do it. Maybe it's a matter of being finely grained. So to look at a particular practice and say, is there reason for a group to complain about this practice? And then you're only looking at the consequences of that particular practice. And so it might very well be that in the sacred cases where the community says, look, there's a, we don't want to be efficient. We don't want this thing being intermingled. We don't want others using it because it has personal significance to us that efficiency is the wrong norm to measure it against. It's unfair to go and bundle in all the benefits you would get from the other kinds of appropriation that occur or cultural mixing that occur. Our case is meant to be protected. So you might think, for example, let's say I've got a very personal diary. And if you publish that diary, more people would be able to see it and it's other people could learn from what it's like to have a, the personal journey that I've had and that there'd be some kind of benefit out of it. I could still have a complaint. Look, it's a private diary. It has my, my thoughts, my vulnerabilities, those things, and they ought to be kept private, that only I should be allowed to use the diary or those that I agree to share it with. And similarly, you might think that with closed communities, sacred books. So for example, the Druze, have a set of sacred texts, which they don't make available to the Druze people themselves. So you have to, at some point, opt into the faith at a certain age, and then you can make the decision to become part of the religious community within the Druze, 
and then you get access to the text. And it's seen as a really bad thing to make the text available to anyone else, even to insiders. So the text is meant to be a private text. And so you might think that you would do something wrong if you put the text up on a website or sold books of it or made clothing that had extracts from the text on it. And the argument is that we should be looking at a case-by-case basis. And in that case, it seems like there's some strong reasons not to engage in the appropriation. And those reasons might not exist in a whole bunch of other cases. No problem with wearing kimonos. They look great on you regardless of your racial background. No problem combining sushi and tacos like everybody gets a better looking tasting product, but that there's some things where there's a reason not to do it. Yeah, so two excellent points. One is that we need to use a more fine-grained approach. So rather than talk about cultural appropriation in general, we need to say cultural appropriation about the Druze sacred text or some other thing like that, like the Native American war bonnet or a New Zealand native dance or certain Native American symbols that we need to focus that it's item specific, not a general feature. And second, which is distinct from the first, that really this is appearing to someone's diary. It's just inappropriate. It's a violation of someone's right. Either it's a basic right infringement, which you know, two philosophers, Nagoyan and Stroll, seem to suggest that we don't need a further explanation, or we have an explanation, but it's whatever explains why it's wrong to read someone's diary against the person's permission. That's what explains why it's wrong. So let's separate those out. One is the fine grain notion. Look, if there's simply, we simply can ask, why is it we should respect this Druze text, right? What is, do they have a right to the idea? Again, I, we're back to, do you own abstract universals? Is there a right here? If not, it's hard to see what explains why we should be so respectful in terms of deontology. If it's in terms of consequential grounds, then yeah, if it's going to deeply offend them and no one's going to really enjoy it, you might think it, then it is wrong on consequential grounds. But again, you have to be a little bit careful here because in general, market improvements are enormously valuable. And why would we think this is not true here? Maybe the Druze or the rest of us could gain quite a bit by looking at their sacred text and seeing what's valuable, even if it gives them discomfort. So I just don't think there's an ex- explanation that would explain why it's wrong to do those things. We know why we think this, right? We think it's insulting, or we think it's aesthetically unappealing, or we think it's harmful, right? But it's not clear that any of those are are actually wrongful explainers. But yeah, if you thought one of those did explain why it's wrong, then that might be a good way to go fine-grained, particularly on consequential grounds. I just think that's highly unlikely. In terms of the diary, which I think is a really powerful point, that look, looking at the Druze text is appearing to dr- diary, someone's diary, that's just an atrocious thing to do. But think about why it's wrong to, to look at someone's diary without the person's permission. One, an individual owns that diary. People don't own anything, right? So then there's a right ownership. Second, what is it that's owned? A diary is a thing. It's a concrete particular. It's an object. Ideas are not like that. Third, to get in someone's diary, you probably had to trespass into someone's house. But it's wrong to trespass into someone's house, so it's protected by other rights. And third, there's a clear membership. Imagine two people co-write a diary. It'd be a little bit weird, but you can imagine that. But at least we know, okay, who are the right holders? But there's no such case with regard to people. So I think your intuitive case with regard to the Druze sacred text or with regard to the Native American war bonnet or the New Zealand dance or Native American symbol. I think intuitively you're absolutely right that those are cases where it just intuitively seems really wrong to use this, especially in a sort of uncaring or commercialized manner. I, I just think this intuition is mistaken. It's one of those intuitions that the closer you get to it, the weaker it gets. Now you can just stand on the intuition. You can just say, look, I know this is wrong. 
I don't think it holds up because the ground is not secure. Or you can use the sort of consequentialist approach, which is look, why deeply offend people when the benefits are so small? Okay, maybe, I just, I really have doubts that that's true. And also you have to ask, is that really our test? Imagine someone wants to insult a bunch of neo-Nazis by writing a, having a satire of them. And it deeply offends the neo-Nazi groups causing them great anguish. And, you know, because it, it's the, the satire is so poorly written. I don't generally like satire, so it wouldn't surprise me. It's poorly written and unenjoyable. The benefits are small. All right, you say you shouldn't do that on consequential grounds. I guess most of us don't think that. So parallel cases just don't seem to work. And then lastly, again, imagine, now you might say this is not fine grain enough, they're too absurd, but I think it's accurate nonetheless. Imagine that the British people are really deeply offended when you, someone else adopted a system of checks and balances, or when they taught John Locke in other countries, particularly Anglo, Anglicized countries. What an enormous loss, even if they're deeply offended. So I guess yeah, in theory, what you're saying makes sense. I just think it fails, both on deontological and consequential grounds. So the other issue that seems complicated to determine is if we say, who gets to claim the right? Who gets to say, we have a concern that you're appropriating from us? It's not like we do a poll among all the members of the group and you decide the majority of them are in favor of the object being shared or don't object and others do object. It's unclear who could become a member of the group if we're going to use the fighting Irish example, for example. So Notre Dame has that as their logo. You've got a kind of short leprechaun guy with his hands up. You can imagine some people finding that insulting, that it reduces the Irish to the stereotype. Now, who gets the complaint? Is it people who live in Ireland? There's a small number of people there. Is it the descendants of the Irish in America, which is tens of millions of people from what I understand? Do you have to say it's the leader of that community? What happens if the community disagrees? What if some people say, whenever I see the fighting Irish logo, I feel nothing but pride and it's a wonderful thing and you're celebrating my tradition. And yes, Irish like to get drunk, beat the shit out of people and hide pots of gold under rainbows. That's our thing. And other people say like, how dare you say this about us as the wonderful Irish people who speak Gaelic and have the sophisticated tradition that you would call us a bunch of drunks. Who gets to determine the fight? Who gets to use the logo? If I can say I'm one-tenth Irish, do I get to dress up on St. Paddy's Day, wear green, drink green beer? Do I have to be fully Irish? Do I have to have, can I have live in Ireland? What's my group kind of identification criteria? Who gets to make the complaint? All those things seem quite difficult to determine in a way that they're less difficult to determine in the intellectual property case. I can show you I have a right to this thing. Here's my trademark. I'm the original author. I have a copyright. Here are the statutes which protect those things. In this case, it seems rather nebulous. It seems that part of why there's so much uncertainty and asynchronous is that you just have some opportunistic individual who makes a complaint, who says, we don't like it that you're doing X. And then if they can get enough pressure, people cave and someone else can do an identical thing and there isn't enough pressure. And so no one caves. And maybe there's internal division among leaders in the community, but the one side just has a bit more access to the press. And so everybody assumes that's the view of all Native Americans is that you should never use the term Redskins. Maybe there's a minority position which is underexplored. So I think this is an excellent point. If there were a right that that sort of justified the, the wrongness of cultural appropriation, it'd be really strange. So let me give you two examples which sort of develop the examples you have. Imagine that you have a bunch of yeshiva boys from Brooklyn and they want to dress up as Bob Marley for Halloween and play reggae music. 
and you say, okay, are they appropriating something which is Jamaican? Well, Bob Marley on some accounts is half white and in fact, half Jewish. You think, and in fact, he wore high in, in some of the pictures. So do they have permission because he's half Jewish? Whereas Haitians, because they're neither Jewish nor Jamaican, they, they don't get to dress up as Bob Marley on, on Halloween. Or imagine you have a bunch of white Catholic school boys from Iowa and they want to dress up as Bruce Lee and some of the, some of, from Fist of Fury and put on some of his best moves. You think, okay, is that appropriation? On, on some accounts, Bruce Lee is one quarter white. He lived the first four years of his life in the U.S. He went to Catholic school. And in fact, his fighting style, Jeet Kune Do, he developed in the U.S. We can say, okay, look, what matters here? Does it matter the objective background of Bruce Lee or Bob Marley, or does it matter how people see them? Both have really strange results. It's really bizarre that the objective background matters, that we have to like go back in time to whatever the 1970s, the 1960s, to see what was in fact true of Bruce Lee or Bob Marley, to see who can dress up with him, who can dress up with him as Halloween. It's a very strange notion that these objective facts determine Halloween wearing in 2023, determine who can wear what on Halloween. But maybe you want to go subjective. How do the groups view themselves? It's an odd view that how the individuals view themselves doesn't matter, but how the group views it does. So does it matter how Jamaicans in general view? Bob Marley saw himself as part Jewish. Why should Bob Marley's perception matter here? Or it's just very strange that you have rights based on how the individual group perceives himself or herself. Using the Redskins football team, one poll showed that the majority of Native Americans polled like the, the symbol that the Washington football team was using right? There's a side note, it's a lot catchier than the commanders. So you might think, why, if there is such a right, we need like a decision procedure. So do we need a majority, a supermajority, a unanimous approval? There does not seem to be a right answer as to what the decision procedure is. Um, in any case, because majority, at least one poll seemed to support it, it's a little hard to see what the objection is. On Native American reservations, a number of the high school football teams are named the Redskins. It's really bizarre that it's okay to name football teams in the reservations, but not a professional football team. And again, even the content of the right is very strange, right? Where are the boundaries of the right? Is Jamaican Chinese food Chinese food, or is it both Jamaican and Chinese? Is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu a derivative of judo, or is it its own sport? So yeah, I just don't think we have to, as a Czech Shepherd, a type of German Shepherd, or is it a distinct dog that only the Czechs may own without appropriation? One, I just don't think there's a right answer as to where the boundary is. And it's not just a matter of vagueness. There's no justificatory fact that tells us what the boundary is, that tells us there probably is no underlying justification. The membership is very unclear. Again, I think the failure is not just standard vagueness. I think the failure is there's no justification. And in terms of how to exercise these things, there's just no right answer as to how decisions groups could make these decisions. If the Czech wanted to say, these are the best dogs around, we want to give carte blanche permission for everyone to have a Czech shepherd, how would they do that? What's the procedure there as a moral matter, not as a legal matter? I don't think there's a right answer. So I think you raise an excellent point. The notion that there is such a, it's just wildly implausible. And yet defenders of cultural appropriation need such a, unless they're going to go consequentialist. So because they need a right, there's no right for those three reasons, right? Content membership and the exercise of the right. It's just an implausible position. Uh, the real issue is, I think, whether we should have contempt for arguments regarding cultural appropriation. 
right? Whether we should take them seriously whatsoever. And I think that's an interesting issue, but that's separate from whether or not it's a true position. It's not. 